Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are here with us this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive and to be transformed by your spirit, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I want to welcome everyone again to church this morning. It's so good to have you, and it's great to be back. I want to say thank you, first off, for your prayers and your generous financial support of us while we were uh, taking time as a family while Noah was in hospital in London and thanking the board too for approving a leave of absence so I could be away to take care of our boys while they were uh, down east and also want to thank our pastoral team for uh, stepping up and preaching and leading while we were away just thank you so much it was uh, it was a difficult month it's hard to believe it was a month we feel like we just sort of lost April you know it just sort of disappeared on us it was a month of just sort of praying and waiting uh, while well, Sarah and Noah went down, they were uh, airlifted down um, beginning of April. Yeah, first or second. And uh, when they arrived there, Noah was in pretty rough shape. And uh, when they finally got to the London hospital, and the, you know, after the flight and after getting through the ambulance right through the city, and they finally got into ICU and um, Sarah could kind of step back and the team sort of descended upon him. And, you know, they start doing stuff. And at, at one point, fairly early on, when he was at his worst, the doctor came uh, just sort of quietly up to Sarah and said, he's really sick. And uh, so at that point, we wondered if we were going to lose him. Uh, but he pulled through. And we thank you for, for praying for us through that. When... Uh, when they got there, they started just pulling. His whole left lung was totally full. He had, had pneumonia as well, and so they just stuck a needle in and started pulling guck out of his lung. And uh, it was pretty brutal. But he, as you can see, he's quite all right and keeping us on our toes. I'm already sweating just from holding kids all morning. And uh, so he's doing okay. He's somewhere back there with Grandpa right now, you know. I think I can see him listening to music and just sort of living life. So he's quite, he's quite pleased, and he's happy to be home. So thank you again for, for caring for us. You know, it's interesting how children can sort of pull us up in the middle of our lives and, and sort of stop what we're doing and cause us to have to stop and pause what we're doing. And uh, Jesus does that in this passage. And so I feel like I can relate quite well to being in the middle of something and then Jesus stopping and having me pay attention to a child. Jesus does that with the disciples in this exact passage. He gets the disciples to stop and take a closer look. We heard Matthew's account this morning um, that the same incident's recorded in Mark and in Luke. And in Luke, uh, it alludes to the fact that Jesus knows his disciples' thoughts. This is Luke 9.46. It says, An argument arose among the disciples as to which was the greatest, but when Jesus perceived the thoughts of their hearts, he then acted to intervene with this moment with the child. Jesus knows the intent of the disciples' argument, this thing that sort of captured their imaginations of who's the greatest. In Mark, Jesus prompts them to get into it. He goes, what were you guys talking about on the way over? And uh, in Mark 9.34, it says they were silent for on the way they discussed with one another who was the greatest. You can hear there's sort of this implicit embarrassment, right? We were fine talking about this until Jesus actually called us on it. 
and we realize something was not quite right uh, in knowing we're comparing ourselves to each other. I'm thankful that Jesus knows our thoughts. Not only does he know the disciples' thoughts, but he knows our thoughts as well. And he knows when we try to compare ourselves to others, as the disciples do in this passage, but he also knows our desire, which is often to do well and to do good. And that can be a good desire, but there's, there's a way in which our desire to do good and to do well and to live for God can sometimes have this sort of insidious, uh, almost idolatry, where we, we, we start then comparing our performance to others. And Jesus stops the disciples in the middle of that. Jesus knows our hearts can be pretty slippery, I think. In Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, it says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, says Jeremiah. So this passage is really about Jesus pulling the disciples up short as they are going about living life, going about discipleship, going about following God, literally walking with him. Jesus calls them up short in the middle of that and gets them to examine their hearts, to examine their thoughts, and to answer the question of greatness. And he does that by redefining what greatness is. That in the kingdom of God, greatness is not about lording power over someone else, but in being like a child. We think even of other passages in the Bible where we hear a little child shall lead them. So let's look again at the text, if you have the Bible with you, or on your phone perhaps. Matthew 18, at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The first thing he says to them, once he's pulled the child over, is to turn. Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And turning is this idea of sort of stopping what you're doing, in a sense repenting of, of a way in which you're living, and then, you know, turning the other way and living in a different direction. In a sense, Jesus is saying, stop the comparison game. Stop the boasting. I've invited you into this life, says Jesus. I've invited you to follow me. But it's not about being more important or being better than someone else. In fact, you need to repent and turn and be like children. And it's worth asking, well, what exactly about children is Jesus pointing to? Because you can fill in a lot of, a lot of your own description in that blank, right? You could say children are innocent. Children are crazy, you know. Children are trustworthy? Uh, I don't know. Children are sometimes listening, sometimes not, right? You could, you could put in some more negative attributes. You could put in some positive attributes. And so we need to check what exactly is Jesus pointing to. There's all sorts of things we could put there that we probably don't want to model, right? Uh, children come down early in the morning and demand that the day starts when you don't want them to. You know, children try to... I had Lewis this morning on me in bed. He was trying to eat my nose, it's just kind of coming at me, his fingers, and it was just all fingers and mouth and kid. And at one point, he was right over my head. I had to kind of grab him and pull him back over. And Yeah, become like a child. It's like, no, thank you. Wrestle on other people. So, Jesus, what are you talking about? 
Well, what does the child actually do? Look at verse 2 again. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and then he speaks. The child obeys Jesus' call to come. He calls the child over, and then he puts the child in the midst of the disciples. And then if you read Luke's, uh, Luke's rendering of this passage, it talks, about, it talks about the child sort of sitting next to Jesus or sort of sitting on Jesus' lap as Jesus is talking to them. So the child obeys Jesus. The child is, is put by Jesus sort of before others, kind of in the midst of the conversation. And then the child is embraced by Jesus. And that's the way of greatness in the kingdom of God, says Jesus. It's about obedience. It's about witness. And it's about love. The disciples are those who are to obediently respond to the call of God. Disciples are those who are called to publicly live for God before others. And disciples are called to lovingly rest in the all-encompassing love of God. And when we think of that, obedience and love, there's a lot of passages in the New Testament where obedience and love are, are tied really closely together. John makes that theme uh, a recurring one in his letters. We think of a passage like 1 John 5, 2, and 3. that says, this is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God, there's the love bit, and by carrying out his commandments, there's the obedience bit. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commandments. So in John, being obedient to God and loving God and loving others are really one and the same thing. Jesus, in the upper room in John 14, he says it this way, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So our love for God is shown in our obedience to him. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And so the meaning of the passage is that obedience to Jesus, especially in John, is both a sign and a test of our love for God. How we respond to God shows us whether we actually love him or not. It's not merely about sort of following kind of abstract moral commands, like sort of arbitrary rules. But the Christian life is, is less about that and always about responding to the word of the living God in and through Jesus. And so it's deeply relationship-oriented, not just sort of performance-oriented. Think about Jesus' words here. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. There it is again, love and obedience. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. There's this sense for the Christian that as we grow in a love for God and as we respond in obedience to God, God himself comes and makes his home in us. So once again, this is very relationship-oriented. Loving Jesus for a Christian is not a feeling so much, though there is feelings involved, but it is an active, abiding, ongoing relationship of obeying and loving our master. And then before we start thinking, okay, great, so this is all about my effort, and I'm awful at this, 
Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Wonderful. Great. Thanks, Jesus. That's actually hard. And then what does he say in John 14? He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, the Counselor, to be with you forever. So lest we start thinking that God is inviting me to follow him, and it's just all obedience, and that's love, and I'm kind of left on my own, we're told straight away that there's someone who will come to help us. God himself will help us to live this out. It's not just on our own strength. And that is really, really encouraging. Because how many of you know, if it's just on my own strength, we're in trouble. I can't do it just on my own. So here the child models something for the disciple, something opposite of the greatness that we might see in the world. That greatness in God's kingdom is about this sort of willingly learning to obey and love God, to keep his commandments, to be responsive to the relationship with the Spirit, to follow Jesus and to obey him. But there's more because the, the Greek word for child is, is, can also be translated as slave or servant. And in the first century, children were often like slaves. They were sort of the bottom rung of the social hierarchy. It's like Jesus saying, in this kingdom, you're called to be childlike servants. Nothing fancy. We follow God. And the disciples are thinking about greatness in terms of human endeavor and accomplishment and status and all of that sort of thing. But Jesus' kingdom's an upside-down kingdom. And for Jesus, he calls disciples to a life of humility and trust and vulnerability and obedience and faith. It's not about being a great one. It's about faithful love and obedience to Jesus, like a child. Children need to look to someone else for help and for direction. And that's the, the sort of posture we're called to have before God as well. And so this morning, the question for us is, are, are our thoughts, our lives marked by a stress of something other than following Jesus. So for the disciples here who, again, as I said, are literally following Jesus, right? They're walking with him. Even as Jesus is so close to them, and they're right there in relationship with him, it was still possible for them to get sidetracked. It was still possible for them to kind of miss the point of what following Jesus was all about. It was still possible for them to get kind of stuck in the definitions that the world was providing in terms of greatness and purpose and identity and, and, and what meaning was in life. And they were measuring it according to greatness. Who's going to be great? Who's going to be the best of, of all of us? And Jesus is right there. How much more do we then need to guard our own hearts? And how easy is it for us in our lives and as you are seeking to follow Jesus, to watch and to say, am I, am I starting to gauge my life by something other than obedience and love? Am I starting to measure it by something else? Am I, am I getting sort of sidetracked or distracted by something other than this relationship with Jesus? 
it's crazy to think that the disciples who are so close to Jesus can also miss it. And there's something encouraging for us in that as well. To remember the disciples are not heroes. They're ordinary people, just like you and me. And Jesus' words today are a good reminder of us, to us. You know, does pride mark my life? Does arrogance mark my life? Do I take comfort in thinking so-and-so? Well, at least I'm better than them. Or at least I'm not as bad as that one. And so it's helpful for us to heed Jesus' words again, to turn, to repent. And what is the last thing he says? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Again, children are not always humble. But in terms of that first century context where kids really have nothing for themselves, in some ways they were almost treated like property. Not always, but there could be that sort of sense underlying there. For us to go, I need to lay down my own ambitions, my own, sometimes my own desires, and instead submit that to Jesus and put in obedience to him first and foremost in my life. I can find it hard to, to humble myself sometimes that I've been given so much. I've been forgiven so much. And it makes me wonder, who, who would Jesus put in front of us today to humble us? Who would sort of pull us up short in the middle of all of our striving and doing things to kind of say, just slow down and think about this one. And as I was... I was preparing this sermon. I was reading a little bit of uh, Rodney Reeves' commentary on Matthew. He said, who would Jesus put in front of us to help us know what it means to humble ourselves? And, and this was Reeves. He said, someone vulnerable, dismissed, perhaps unwanted, completely dependent on others. Who would Jesus bring before us today to represent the least of us? Perhaps a child, perhaps someone with a disability. And so I was thinking back again to Noah and how he pulled me up short. That greatness doesn't often look the way it does in the world. And we say, have mercy on us, Lord, would you open our eyes to see your kingdom. As a church, you know, it can also be easy to think the way the disciples think in this passage and to compare ourselves to other churches, right? Compare even the church building to other buildings or, or you know, music to other music or preaching to some other preacher or programs to some other programs or ministry. And, and yeah, there's churches that have larger buildings and larger staff and more ministries and bigger youth groups and more outreach. And it can be easy to start to measure success or purpose on that metric, just like the disciples do where they're comparing to each other. But what does Jesus calls us to? Well, first Jesus says he'll build his church. Jesus promises to build his church. He calls us to faithfully proclaim and live out the gospel. And as we do that, he will look after the rest. He calls us to that humility and that obedience and that love that's shown in that child. 
And so my prayer is as we come to the communion table today, may we come almost as an act of childlike obedience, coming again afresh to receive and say, Jesus, I want to humble myself. I want you to be first and foremost in my life. Not some other thing, not what's going on at work, not the issues in my marriage, not the issues in my family. Lord, I need to humble myself and let you come and speak into all those areas in my life. I can't do it on my own. I need the presence and work of your spirit to help me navigate this. And like a child, I need to turn to you. I need to live faithfully for you. I want to obey you, Lord. Would you forgive me of all the times that I fall short of that? So let that be our prayer as we come to the table today. That we would hear Jesus call again to turn and to repent and to believe. That we would confess that he alone is our Savior. And that loving him is worth all in our lives. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you again for your word and for uh, the model of this child. And Lord, uh, at the end of the day, we're all children in your eyes. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, obedient hearts to follow you. Lord, that in the moments where even as we may be trying to follow you and we get distracted by stuff, just like the disciples are here, Lord, we thank you that you know our thoughts. You know our thoughts and you know our hearts. And uh, you call us lovingly, generously, graciously back to yourself. And I pray this morning, Lord, that if there are those that are here and we feel like we have been far from you, Lord, today I pray that you would speak and call, call us to yourself. Lord, I thank you that we are never too far gone for your love. And that we're never too far gone to be embraced like a child. Be called to yourself. Lord, I thank you that instead of saying there's a measurement of performance we need to keep up and then you love us. No. You simply love us. And then you call us to respond faithfully and obediently out of that love. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take your grace for granted, that we wouldn't abuse that love, Lord, that you would call us humbly to follow you. And Lord, there's so much in our lives where we need you to move and to act in, in various places, at school, at work, as we mentioned, in family or marriage. There's all kinds of stuff going on in our lives. There's health issues and diagnosis and decisions to be made. Lord, we bring all of that today. We pray that you would come and speak. Give us wisdom and direction by your spirit. Fill us afresh, Lord, that we may rest like a child in the embrace of your love and that we would respond obediently to the life that you call us to. We ask this in your name. Amen.